So welcome back. I found my speakers. I think we're ready uh, to get going for the second group uh, of talks that we have prepared for you today for Global Strategy Forum uh, 2016. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, we're going to be talking about strategic challenges and opportunities uh, for the United States. You've heard, I think, a great discussion uh, to kick us off to really start stimulating your thinking about things that are changing uh, around the world. But as I mentioned before, all too often when we think about that future, and as one of the speakers did, uh, as well. We just think about the bad stuff. We think about the challenges. We think about all the things we need to prepare, be prepared to prevent. Uh, and we don't think that much uh, about the opportunities and the things that we can actually pursue to try and shape uh, a better world. So this next session uh, is really about opportunities uh, and challenges. And I think uh, to most people that sounds like a really obvious discussion to have. Uh, but I can tell you, at least anecdotally from my experience uh, in government, it's often a very difficult conversation uh, to have. I have literally been in meetings where I've put on the board opportunities and challenges and said, let's fill that out. And we get a longer and longer list of challenges and nothing on the opportunities side. And when I tell people, you're not going to lunch, lunch is usually a good, uh, good incentive. You're not going to lunch until we put some opportunities on the board. Mostly what I got were, if that challenge doesn't happen, that's a pretty good opportunity. <laughs> well, that's not what we mean. What we mean is that in all of these areas, there are genuinely both opportunities and challenges. And again, the trick here, the issue here, is not which one do you pick, but it's how do you manage both sides of this particular equation. So we've got an in really interesting group uh, for you next. We've got somebody uh, who's going to talk to you about cyber. We've got somebody who's going to talk to you about countering violent extremism. And we've got somebody who's going to talk to you about aspects of development that address things like stability, uh, around the world. Think about all of those uh, issues, and I think what you'll find really interesting uh, about this is all of them are going to talk to you aspe about aspects that are not really the things that you're going to hear, again, on the cable news channel, or frankly, in my opinion, not enough of in the discussion here in the DC uh, think tank uh, community. You're going to hear Josh Corman, who comes to us from an incredible background doing work uh, that I would classify both private sector and in the public good uh, towards cy uh, cyber safety and security, and really thinking about both the opportunities and the challenges uh, in that area. Not just the typical offense, defense, deterrence perspective, but really a much more holistic uh, approach to looking at that. We have Jasmine Elgamal who's going to talk to us about narrative and countering violent extremism, which is an aspect that I think on the one hand we all know is an important part. On the other hand, I don't think we actually talk uh, enough about and think hard uh, enough about. And then we have Vijay Mahan who's going to really talk to us about thinking differently about uh, development and how we can think about uh, really uh, working in particular with private sector in a more uh, integrated and holistic manner uh, as we think about parts of the world uh, that are developing and parts of the world that from a challenges perspective we, always, we often look at as uh, stability uh, challenges to international security. So let me introduce more formally, uh, first, uh, Josh Corman, uh, who is, for those of you who don't know yet, our new director uh, of cyber statecraft, uh, the Cyber Statecraft Initiative uh, here at the Atlantic Council uh, and in the Brent, uh, Brent Scowcroft Center for International uh, Security. Uh, Josh, as I said, comes to us with a background both of uh, extreme specialization in techno technical issues, uh, which go above my head, uh, but also extreme commitment to the public good. He uh, helped create an organization 
organization called I Am the Cavalry, uh, which he continues to pursue here uh, at the Atlantic Council. Uh, the reason for that uh, name for the organization, as you can imagine, is because, uh, as he's told me many times, people are always imagining the cavalry is just over the hill in terms of cyber challenges, and it's going to save them at some point. Uh, and Josh always tells me there is no cavalry, uh, so he is the cavalry, or he is at least trying to convince people that they need to think harder about where uh, the cavalry uh, is. Uh, Jasmine Elgamal, who I've known for a few years now, uh, comes with a fascinating background, and I'm going to read hers because uh, I think you should know about uh, all different uh, aspects of it. So recently graduated, is that correct, from the documentary filmmaking program at the New York Film Academy, which I just think is amazing uh, and an interesting experience that I'm hoping uh, we'll hear more uh, about. Uh, before that, she was Truman National Security Fellow working on countering violent extremism issues uh, and has really spent uh, her career uh, in government, uh, is, which is where I got to know Jasmine, uh, really trying to figure out how to uh, build bridges and foster communications and cooperation uh, between you know, what we've often called irreconcilable sides in terms of thinking about uh, countering violent uh, extremism. Um, Jasmine served as a translator with the 82nd Airborne in southern Iraq in 2003. Uh, and as I understand it, and Jasmine, please correct me if I'm wrong, you sought out and volunteered for that position uh, to go over and uh, be involved uh, directly, which is something that I have great admiration and respect for. Uh, and again, I think brings uh, an incredible experience to the uh, work you do. And since then, uh, from 2008 to about 2013, served as uh, well, served in multiple regional capacities, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria country directors in the Office of the Secretary of Defense, uh, as well as some higher uh, offices in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So welcome, Jasmine, uh, as well. And then we'll have Vijay Mahan, as I've mentioned before. Uh, Professor Mahan is the uh, John P. Harbin Centennial Chair in Business uh, at the Macomb School for Business at the University of Texas in Austin. Uh, really well respected in the area of scientific marketing and marketing strategy. Uh, his book, The 86% Solution, Convergence Marketing and Africa Rising, uh, has been selected as a finalist for Book of the Year uh, Award, uh, with the 86% Solution winning the award in uh, 2007, if I have that uh, correct. And we've really, we're really looking forward to Dr. Mahan's presentation uh, today as he talks about uh, looking forward in that respect. And then finally, as moderator, uh, my good friend Todd Rosenblum, who uh, works with us here at the Council, uh, but is also working at IBM, thinking about uh, the uses of big data and national security, uh, has a great background uh, in the national security community, uh, and outside the Council is president and CEO of the National Security Outcomes Analytic Consulting uh, firm. Uh, previously, I was lucky enough to work with uh, Todd when he was in the uh, Pentagon, working as Acting Assistant Secretary of Defense uh, for Homeland Defense, uh, and we're very pleased to have him here to uh, both pull together the uh, discussions that you're going to hear from the various presentations and again to encourage you all to participate in this discussion as we go forward. So please please be prepared for him to call on you uh, towards the end of the presentation. So uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank, uh, join me in thanking this uh, next panel coming up. Josh, over to you. All right, thank you for, for having me. We're gonna put some uh, sharks on the screen. All right, so I love the ocean. Before I got into cybersecurity for the last 15 years, before I got into software for the last 20, um, I actually went to school for marine biology. I wanted to study dolphins and sharks and all the promise and peril that the ocean holds. I think it's gorgeous, it's beautiful. 
There's so much opportunity in the ocean. It's so big, it's so unknown, and there's a lot of apex predators. Um, so it dawned on me that I should probably convey my deep concern for the Internet of Things uh, in the form of talking about a shark dive that we did. So um, a lot of hackers like to put themselves in danger for some reason. I don't know why. And while I am not a hacker, I do study them and live among them. And uh, uh, truly a hacker would say that they're not a hacker. But um, over the last uh, five or so years, I've grown deeply concerned about the relationship between technology and the human condition. And I've struggled for a way to explain that in a way that isn't alarmist. Because of course technology is amazing. Of course adding connectivity and Bluetooth and 4G LTE Wi-Fi hotspots to everything has tremendous promise. When you work with the Department of Transportation, they'll remind you that in the US alone, in 2014, there were 32,000 deaths due to, to automobiles. 32,000 plus deaths, 94% of which were due to human error from drunk, distracted, tired, inexperienced drivers. So the degree to which we can accelerate and usher in autonomous and semi-autonomous vehicles could dramatically save lives. Of course we know that. What we haven't done is made sure that the technology we depend upon is worthy of the trust that we place upon it. So let's talk about sharks for a minute. I, I'm a scuba diver. I love the ocean. I could spend all my time there if I could afford it. Um, and I've incidentally seen a shark off in the distance once in a while. Uh, they don't really like people very much. So unless they're properly motivated and incentivized, you're not going to see them up close. So one of our friends, uh, Dave Litchfield, is a professional shark diver and photographer in addition to smashing uh, software from Oracle and, and Microsoft and whatnot. And one of my life's bucket list ambitions is actually see a school of hammerheads in the wild. They're, they're gorgeous. They're beautiful. So when he offered me the opportunity a few years ago to go shark diving with him, I jumped at the chance. Now, it's a fairly expensive endeavor. We're going to go uh, off of Cape Cod and we could split the, the cost of the boat if we can get more of our friends to come. And most of them made polite excuses. Has anybody here been shark diving? OK. All right, great. Right there. You're my, you're my tribe. Um, we tried to get people, and most people made polite excuses. But my boss at the time, the, the CSO of Akamai, he said, what kind of an idiot gets in the water with an apex predator? He was the only honest one, right? Everyone else made polite excuses. But he thought we were fools to try to get into the water on purpose with nature's perfect killing machine. Now, my policy friends here in Washington remind me that the apex predator is actually governments. But, <laughs> but back to the ocean, right? We have this big open sea. So you know, we, we, you can swim every day of your life in the ocean and never see a shark. I mean, it's a pretty big place, right? And the presence of apex predators isn't the issue. But it's amazing what happens when just one drop of water, one drop of blood is in the water. So we deliberately did this, right? You chum in the waters to attract them so you have something to look at. It was less than five minutes before this little guy showed up. So the presence of blood in the water attracted them. And natively, they came. This is a blue shark. It's not my favorite shark by any stretch. They are pretty gorgeous in person. There's an electric blue that shines off the top of them. And it clearly is gorgeous. It's beautiful. I was so happy to get that close-up encounter. And if your fight or flight instincts in your body right now are saying, what kind of an idiot is he to do this, remember that my friend Dave took the picture. and He's not in the, the safety of a cage. Um, he does this often. Now, I loved this. And at this point, the risk reward, the cost benefit was great. And we have this cliche in cybersecurity that you don't have to swim faster than the shark, just faster than your buddy. And that worked for a time. That era is over now, now that we have more types of sharks and more variety of sharks and more volume of sharks. But one thing that we forget is our sharks also have buddies. So this picture was taken moments later. 
while he turned around. So what, what was one you know, curious shark taking a look at the human he wanted to liberate from the cage became two, became three, and it was impossible for us to keep tabs on them all. And they were getting very aggressive and they were getting very hungry. And he had very quickly realized that the risk equation had tipped and it was time for him to get back in the boat. In fact, the pictures after this are the inside of one of their mouths as they're trying to bite the camera. Now, if you think this one's particularly bad, this is his prior dive in Australia where he, I think he ended up in National Geographic. But when you are in the, you know, face to face with an apex predator, when you are humbled by how much more they deserve and need to be there and how out of place that we are, you're reminded that maybe um, we're not safe. You know, maybe we need to get back to the safety of dry land. And even though I got out of the cage and back into the boat, I didn't feel safe for the next three hours until I was literally back on dry land. Now, that three-hour three boat ride back gave us time to think and talk about just how hard security had gotten. Now, while I don't necessarily spend all my time swimming with sharks, um, other friends of mine thought I was an idiot uh, for studying these guys. Now, while not sharks, perhaps you recognize the iconography. This is the Guy Fox mask. In fact, yes, this is, we just experienced May Day, uh, which is very important to the, the, the rise of activism and hacktivism and anonymous. But at the beginning, when no one understood what they were, um, I embarked on a research project called Building a Better Anonymous, where we really wanted to understand this emergent property of hyperconnectivity. I saw large groups of post-national youths opting out of social contracts and asserting their will online it was uh, not so much the end state, but really the, the, the harbinger of things to come. And I had deep concern over what this meant in this, post, uh, this Westphalian plus post-national emergence. And while they didn't have a whole lot of resources or hacking talent, in fact, it's a misnomer to even call them hacktivists. They had very, very few hackers and very, very few activists. What they did was reveal to the world that hacking power existed and was available to anyone. Because with very, very low skill, they were wildly successful. One group called Lulsec went on a 50-day rampage taking down every single target they could think of, and it worked. And this essentially revealed a new form of power that other groups could follow. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you had nation-state adversaries, and this is when people started realizing it's not just organized crime, it's the, the, the wealth and the treasure and resources and determination of nation states who want to steal your intellectual property. And if you think about it, despite $80 billion US being spent on cybersecurity, uh, pretty much 100 of the Fortune 100 have lost intellectual property. It's about a 100% failure rate. If you think of industry best practices, like the payment card industry for credit cards, which is the basis for the NIST national cybersecurity framework we're all voluntarily adopting, 100% of the PCI compliant merchants have had a compromise. So our failure rate, again, is about 100%. And when I think about this, it's very overwhelming that maybe we can't protect anything. Maybe we actually don't have this figured out. And unlike other markets, cybersecurity is not a market. It's a market enabling market. Look how many markets depend upon a trusted commerce and marketplace that may not be trustworthy. Now, the first time I was in the fort, they asked me, uh, Josh, what do you think, what does the outside world and the hacker community think of our capabilities? And I said at the time, I assume we're really, really good at offense. We're really, really good at defense. We take some solace in the assumption that the same is true for our adversaries, but we forget that we've got so much more to lose. So maybe the measure isn't about how good is our offense versus our defense, but how dependent are we on connected technology that can affect public safety and human life. And the asymmetry of this truth, the state of nature in cyber is a state of offense. And there's a reason we amplify our offense, but there's going to be a cost for our lack of defensibility.
So when I got back to dry land, and when I got on the ground and kissed it, because I really didn't feel safe with all those sharks, uh, I looked at my brand new car, my hyper-connected car, my 4G LTE Wi-Fi hotspot enabled car. And it dawned on me, I said, oh my gosh, the Internet of Things is a tsunami. We're going to be swimming in a sea of technology. We're putting Bluetooth and connectivity on everything. And just next time you hear the word software for the next 24 hours, think vulnerable. And next time you hear connected, think exposed. So the Internet of Everything is a vulnerable and exposed Internet. And we're putting the ability for anyone on the Internet to assert their will onto you and your family. It's in our cars, it's in our medical devices, it's in our public infrastructure, it's in our homes. And we're unlike the ocean where I can get out of the water. In the Internet of Everything, we're running out of dry land. And I'm not sure that's a good thing because we too have apex predators. So while this is not my car, this is the Toyota Prius that some of my friends hacked to show how vulnerable cars are. You can shut off the brakes, you can turn the steering wheel, you can do a remote kill switch. There's a number of things. There's 69 computers, I believe, in that particular one vehicle. There are over 100 million lines of software in a modern car and climbing. And Microsoft, with one of the arguably the best security programs in the world, and they do just about everything right from a, from a state-of-the-art perspective, they're still fixing a dozen or more critical and high security flaws per month, and they only have about 10 million. They have about a tenth the attack surface of a modern vehicle. So while we're spending $80 billion on credit cards and intellectual property with a near 100% failure rate, how can we possibly feel so safe with 10 times the attack surface and almost no defensive investment yet in our cars? It's also our medical devices. Our friend Jay Radcliffe is a type 2 diabetic. He had to hack his insulin pump. He found that pretty much he could not find a model with Bluetooth that was not vulnerable to hackers emptying the insulin and potentially giving him a lethal dose. We also have technologies in the home, the home alarm systems, the Bluetooth door locks. We have not found one deliberately surveillance security or door lock that's meant to keep bad people out of your home that cannot also let them into your home. Not one of them has stood the test of a, a friendly white hat adversary resilience test. And what's much worse than the global and international security context is things like Shodan. It's essentially a Google for hackers. Notice the tagline, webcams, routers, power plants, iPhones, wind turbines, etc. These are essentially devices connected directly to the internet, often with hard-coded default passwords that you can Google. You don't even have to be a hacker. You simply need the willpower to assert yourself on others. One of my mentors, Dan Gear, likes to say, on the internet, every sociopath is your next door neighbor. So without trying to scare you, we traditionally say, what would most people do? And that's the wrong question here. In a hyper-connected world, we have to ask, what would one do? What might one do? So I looked as far as I could. I looked as high as deep as I could in the international intelligence community. I tried to raise this to the adults in the room and say, you know, you guys got to fix this. And to our surprise and to our dismay, we found the cavalry isn't coming. We could not find anyone to save us. And what that means is it's simultaneously disheartening and empowering. Because if you know the cavalry isn't coming, it falls to you to try. So I went to DEF CON, the largest hacker conference in the world, a few months later, and I said, guys, the cavalry isn't coming. It falls to us. And we formed a group called I Am The Cavalry, which was not to be boastful. It was to say, we need to be a voice of reason and technical literacy. We need to be a translator and ambassador to the public, to public policymakers, and to the affected industries where bits and bytes meet flesh and blood. You know, our rally cry was saving lives through security research. And while we haven't seen a, a very large death toll, we knew if we waited for that moment, it would be too late. 
So when we think about consequences, I'd like to argue for a moment, little fuzzy logic, that we have not had a, a cybersecurity failure of any consequence yet. Your credit card was replaced. No publicly traded companies have gone out of business. There have been inconveniences and embarrassments. Maybe a few people lost their jobs. But we are on the cusp of entering an era of high consequence failure in cybersecurity. And when that moment comes, it's already too late. We have to start laying the scaffolding now to improve defenses. This is the Cuyahoga River in Ohio. Just after the turn of the century, it caught on fire and stayed on fire for days. Not the first time, by the way, but it tipped public consciousness that maybe we needed to do something about pollution. And in the same spirit, we didn't want to wait for our cyber Cuyahoga. We don't want to wait for that tipping point where the time to fix things might be measured in a decade, five years to a decade. And since then, we've seen the first confirmed hack of a power utility in the Ukraine, which is a fairly resilient platform, by the way. We've also seen uh, unsealed documents showing uh, Iranian hackers successfully manipulated a water facility in upstate New York, thankfully one that wasn't in use. We've also seen, and this one's the one that really scares me, this is Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital, which had to shut down patient care, not because an ideological adversary attacked it, but as a byproduct of a ransomware campaign, it shut down patient care. They had to move patients. People will die now because of frailty and vulnerability in our cyber dependence. So back to Anonymous, when we were writing this, people said, why are you doing this? They're going to attack you. And we said, we think this is a blueprint that will be copied and perfected. And we even had uh, artwork like this showing it was a blueprint. And I think if you, if you take a step back, it's undeniable that the blueprint forged by Anonymous has been perfected and mastered social media-wise, at least by ISIS and ISIL and ideological adversaries. But what's worse, as an existence proof, one of the actual hackers we studied in Team Poison, one of the actual hacking groups, goes by Trick or Hussein out of the UK, radicalized at some point after our research was done and has since been killed by a drone strike missile. But this is someone with the, the, the motive, means, and opportunity, perhaps, to exercise that will and afflict public safety and human life damage. So when the consequences of failure are measured three ways, number one, loss of human life, number two, a crisis of confidence in the public to trust these very key parts of our relative GDP, and number three, um, shaking the faith of our governments to protect its citizenship. And those things are what I would call a high consequence. So what does that mean for us? We will have failures. All systems fail. That's one of the things we tell people through the On the Cavalry Initiative. The question is, can we respond to failure in a quick and agile manner? And as we saw with the Deepwater Horizon, it wasn't necessarily the case. So in the anticipation of this, it's not so much about the presence of ideological adversaries like Trick. It's not the presence of earthquakes. And the best way I can put this to us on how we might act going forward is if you look at the Haitian earthquake, which killed 230,000 people, it was a 7.0 Richter scale, what got very, very little coverage later was a much stronger earthquake in Chile because it only killed 279 people. And of all the factors isolated for and solved for, it wasn't the presence of earthquakes or even the magnitude of earthquakes, it was building codes. Chile had them and Haiti didn't. And we have been derelict in our duties to make defensible digital infrastructure. And as such, the Cavalry has published two things which we're going to be bringing into the Atlantic Council context and in the international policy context and building upon, which is the idea that all systems fail. And through the automotive five-star cyber safety framework, how do you avoid failure, take help avoiding failure, 
notice and learn from failure, respond quickly to failure, contain and isolate failure. And similarly, we wrote a Hippocratic Oath for Connected Medical Devices, and we've been working with regulators and stakeholders in these ecosystems to make more defensible IT. Because in the context of cyber statecraft, we've been the idea is offense will always be greater than defense. And we can use norms, treaties, deterrence, et cetera. What we've forgotten is for these other adversaries in a Westphalia plus world with subnationals and ideological, they will not be deterred by our international deterrence. So we must raise defense and defensibility above the tide line. So I am the cavalry in the context of this Global Atlantic Council. I don't know what it's going to look like, but I know it's going to take the collective will of each of you because these problems are here right now. Sharks are among us. We are adrift in an internet of things, and blood is in the water. Thank you. Hi, everyone. I had this thought that I shouldn't speak Arabic while I was holding a very like questionable looking device and then remembered I wasn't on a Southwest Airlines flight, so I can speak Arabic. Um, as Dan said, when I was 21 years old, I volunteered to be a translator in Iraq with the 82nd Airborne Division. And um, we arrived in Iraq at the start of the war on the eve of the invasion. And at some point, we were in the desert, you know, we found ourselves kind of at a lull, and we saw these burning buildings in front of us in the distance that we had just bombed as part of our shock and awe campaign. And at the same time, because we were sitting around in the desert, we had country music playing on these speakers, and I suddenly had this, it just felt so surreal, and I had this question, like, who, what is going on here? Like, who are we? And what are we doing here? And I share that story with you because I felt at that moment for the first time that I was witnessing America's story as it unfolded. And not only was I witnessing it, but I was a part of it. And as a translator, I was responsible for telling that story in a way that resonated with our audience at the time. And our story wasn't always easy to tell. As part of a civil affairs team, you know, we thought we were there to rebuild hospitals and schools, but we also found ourselves banging down doors and dodging bullets. And we were caught between trying to win hearts and minds and trying to protect our own bodies between the story that we wanted to tell and the story that we were forced to tell. And I witnessed firsthand the impact of labeling somebody and stereotyping and how damaging it could be if we did that too quickly without really thinking about it. You know, when Iraqis became hajis or ragheads or Sunnis or Shia, when interpreters were Terps, which doesn't sound insulting, but it felt a little objectifying to be called a Terp. Um, and you know, the Americans, depending on who you were talking to, were either invaders or liberators, oppressors or humanitarians. And in that context, I understood what it was like to have to choose sometimes between your values and your interests.
even when you didn't want to make that choice. And I found that talking about that discrepancy, just by talking about it, often meant the difference between a completely hostile environment and one in which we felt safe. And so I understood then that words could mean life. And since that time, I have been a part of our struggle between our values and interests. And I found that we, we really do best when we, when we try not to gloss over that discrepancy, but when we actually try to talk about it and explain it and address it. Um, a few years ago, I was talking to one of my friends, uh, an Egyptian-American living in Egypt, and he was asking me about US policy in Egypt, and he said, you know, Jasmine, I understand that you guys, America, that you guys will sometimes have to choose between your values and interests. I understand that you won't always be able to do what we want you to do. I get it. But I hate it when you pretend otherwise, when you pretend that there is no difference between the two, because it makes me feel like you think we're stupid, and we're not stupid. And it is impossible today to pretend that that discrepancy doesn't exist. The panelists earlier today talked about technology and migration. Those are two great examples of why it's impossible to ignore the discrepancy between values and interests. Um, you know, with technology today, we as individuals, we don't depend on a higher power anymore to tell us who we are or what's going on in the world or what to think about it or what to do about it. We can do that ourselves. And at the same time, it's never been easier to you know, self-select. We don't ever have to read or watch or listen to anything or anyone that we don't agree with. And against this backdrop of open communication, we're also seeing this forced mass migration from one continent to the other between sometimes mostly Muslim populations to non-Muslim majority countries in some cases, in the case of the US. And that has implications, huge implications for our national identity as a country and for the policies that we choose to adopt, um, both domestic and international. Um, So, how, so, you know, what do we do about all of this? I think that one of the biggest challenges that we have as a country right now is that we don't have a roadmap for how to move forward as a country. I'm not talking about how to agree on everything. We're never going to agree on everything, nor should we. But just about how to agree to disagree and move forward as one country. Technology has yielded awareness of all of these problems, but not necessarily insight as to how to solve them. Migration has yielded bodies, but not necessarily a way to integrate them or to use them to strengthen our country. So today, I think, you know, our country is more, it's incredibly divided. 
Our country is incredibly divided. Our election cycle has been defined by anger and discontent and frustration, and in some cases, even hatred and outright racism. And I think that affects our ability and sometimes our willingness to lead. And I think that we are strongest as a country when we can, when we have a strong sense of self and when we can lead by example. Think of the example that we've set as a country of immigrants. And think of how different our story would be if that wasn't the case. Think of what our country would be if that wasn't the case. So there are, these are a lot of issues, a lot of problems. So what do we do about it? As a former translator, I truly believe that the way to deal with a lot of these challenges is to just communicate, is to talk. It sounds simple, but it's not. We often don't know how to talk to each other or to others. But you know, as individuals, you and I have never before had the power like we do today to speak and use our own voices. We don't need anyone's permission. We have our phones, we have Facebook, we have Twitter. We just can say whatever we want. But with that ability, I think, comes a huge responsibility to have these conversations with honesty and with respect. And sorry, I have to look at my notes again. Um, you know, we, we can choose to communicate. We, you can choose to reach out to someone who's different than you, and you can choose to ask them your, their story. And you can choose to communicate your story. And you just might find that you have something in common. You can choose politicians that will help heal our country and help us to tell a very different story than the one we are seeing on TV right now on some campaign trails. We do not have the luxury to sit on the sidelines right now and allow our country's story and our, to be told and our identity to be defined by someone else. We have to do it ourselves. Um, as an American Muslim, I believe that it is high time we stopped asking the question, why do they hate us? It is simplistic, and it's misleading, and it's very damaging. So seriously, Fareed Zakaria, if you're watching, stop asking that question. It's really annoying. <laughs> um, Every time someone asks that question, you force American Muslims to be viewed as the other by both they and us. We're in the middle. And it sucks, quite frankly. I am just as likely as any of my co-panelists, for example, to be beheaded by ISIS because I disagree with their worldview. But I'm the only one of my co-panelists who will be asked to defend it or explain it or whose religion will be blamed for it. And that is not fair. So I think that, you know, I am here to tell you that American Muslims are not the other. We, we're not they. 
were you. And so I think it's time for us to stand together as one country and reject any premise or any person that tells us otherwise. That is an opportunity. And I promise you that if we can do that, that will prove what kind of leader we can be and what kind of example we can set as our world changes so rapidly. And finally, as a storyteller, I want to tell you that I believe in the power of these words. I believe in the fact that words matter. You know, words are how we express our intentions and our identities, and it's how we tell our stories. And words are how we can build bridges that are much more resilient than anything made out of concrete or steel. And so I believe the biggest opportunity we have moving forward is learning how to identify our story, doing it together as one country. We can disagree, but we need to do it together. And learning how to tell that story honestly and respectfully. And we can't rely just on words, but our words will be just as important as our actions. Thank you so much. Are we ready with the slides? Uh, ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Uh, it's tough to follow two very passionate young speakers. So please give me some credit for my age. Uh, I'm a marketing professor, a chemical engineer by profession, and just happened to be in marketing by accident. Uh, that's some other story. What I'm going to present to you is not my mainstream research at the University of Texas. This has become my passion. Passion for the last about, I would say, uh, at least 15 years. Uh, so what is this passion? This passion started with the invitation back in 1990s. I used to be at Wharton School University of Pennsylvania before I went to uh, uh, Texas. So one of my former colleagues called me and asked me that uh, we have been invited to make a presentation on how can we stop developing countries from begging. Did you hear that? Yes or no? Yes. And I'm a, uh, the son of a small businessman. And my former colleague was born in Haifa. So his father is also a very small businessman. And we both didn't understand why they have called us to give this presentation. Anyhow, lucky for us, after a week, they called us back saying that we have canceled your presentation, which was a blessing, really, because we had absolutely no idea what we were going to say. We kept on thinking maybe they're asking us to talk about entrepreneurship and so on and so forth. So that led me to a journey. And this journey has taken me to 70 or 80 different countries, and maybe more. So there's a reason I have back issues. And there's a reason they asked me to, I can sit on this chair. So what is my story? My story is that 
in my story, there are two groups. One group I call 14%, and second group I call 86%. 14% of the group has population, which is close to less than a billion, and 86% of the group has population, which is almost close to 6 billion. So the 14% of the group is asking, like in this session here, how do we engage with a group which is 86%? So that's my story. My story is that how do we engage? I'm a private sector person. That's what I teach. That's what I consult. And that's what I write. And in the process, I have published three books so far. First one is called 86% Solution, because that's about the group which is 86%. Then I traveled in Africa. That's because a lot of 86% of the people live in Africa. So I traveled for about four years, wrote about Africa as an opportunity, a message to our business people here that you cannot ignore more than 1 billion people on this planet. During this process, I got interested in Islam. So I traveled in North Africa. I went to 18 of the Arab League countries extensively. And then I came up with a book, The Arab Word Unbound, which got killed by the Arab Spring. So in fact, I had just come back home from Syria and then started the Arab Spring after a few months. The book did whatever it was supposed to do. It went to the right people. So my next book is coming out this uh, summer. So this is a publicity. And I'm going to talk about this book later, that why I wrote this book. Ladies and gentlemen, in my story, 86% versus 14%, I'm totally convinced that 14% of the world really need to understand what 86% of the world is. But we have to, why? For economic reasons. All the economic growth which is taking place these days is in the 86% of the book, 86% of the world. So what is my definition of 86% versus the 14%? I kept on thinking, how do I define these two groups? My definition came from actually a book which was written by Kanichi Omaha, because Japanese managed to go from 86% to the 14% group back in 1980s. And the definition is when a country achieves a GDP per capita of 10,000 US dollars, they become part of the 14% group, which is a very elite group. And we are part of that group. We are a big, big part of that group combining about 18% of the world GDP. 3%, 4% of our population combining about 15% of the GDP. If we sneeze, somebody loses a job in Bangladesh. So that's my definition. It's not easy to go from 86% to the 14% club. Very few countries have managed to do that. If all the countries do that, there'll be no need for me to come and talk to you this morning. Case in point, South Korea. If you look at South Korea, they literally killed themselves to become part of the 14% world. And as a matter of fact, it happened to them sometime in, in 1980s. And then you see sustainability became an issue for them. You can look at also Singapore. Singapore, as a matter of fact, they used to have a sign at the airport that we are going to be next Switzerland. And they work very, very hard. There are very few countries 
that have managed to become part of the 14% world. Most recent was Turkey and Brazil, but they are both having issues. The countries to watch would be Mexico and Malaysia. These two countries are hitting that point of 10,000 GDP per capita. So ladies and gentlemen, this is, my, this is my story. My story is about the buyers and the sellers, either coming from 14% or coming from 86%. And the most south, south, south cell, which is a cell D, is the most interesting one. This is Chinese going into Africa, Indian going into Africa, Brazilian going to Africa. So that's your cell D. Now, I came to this country when I was 22 years old. So I came from 86% of the world. And I came to the 14% of the world. Literally, it was a shock. I didn't know you could have electricity 24 hours a day. I didn't know you could have water 24 hours a day. I was born in a state called Jammu and Kashmir in northern part of India, where they still don't have electricity for 14, 15 hours a day. As a matter of fact, some people think that I'm wrong. That word already is 86%, is 90%. As a matter of fact, a couple of years ago, there was a, the, the design museum in New York City had an exhibition called Designing for the Other 90%. So they believe it really is 90%. Irrespective of those numbers, then I asked myself that I spent most of my life in this country. So what's wrong with me? Why cannot I engage with 86% of the world? Why do we fail there? Why we cannot engage with 6 billion people on this planet? We know that that's where the growth is. And three big groups in that 86% are China, India, and Africa. So these three groups collectively have majority of the population in 86% of the world. So what's wrong with me? This is before I started my journey. Ladies and gentlemen, then I realized that there were three things wrong with me. First, I'm rich. I'm really rich. We don't realize how rich we are. Case in point, I live in Austin, Texas, and the total GDP of Austin metropolitan area is $115 billion for a population of 2 million. There are only four states in India that has population they had GDP more than Austin, Texas. Only four states. As a matter of fact, we all know about Bangalore, state of Karnataka. State of Karnataka has GDP less than Austin, Texas. And here they brag about how much they had done with the IT industry. As a matter of fact, none of the states in India had GDP greater than Houston, Texas. 54 countries in Africa, only four of them have GDP more than Austin, Texas. None of them have GDP more than Houston. China. China, only four states, four provinces, have GDP more than Houston, Texas. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm rich. I am rich. Second thing, what's wrong with me? From marketing point of view, no. I have big homes. Big homes. As a matter of fact, average size of a house in the United States these days is 2,600 square feet. And there are only 2.2 people who live in that house. The only country that has bigger houses than us is Australia. 
So I have big home. Buy one, get two free. <laughs> Three car garage. Two dining areas, breakfast area. Whole bunch of mobile phones. And throw in a few cats and dogs. As a matter of fact, cats and dogs industry, the food industry, is almost the same size as the uh, as entire GDP of Ethiopia. What else is wrong with me? I have an urban mindset. India is where the United States used to be 1880. Ethiopia is where the United States used to be in 1860. And despite what you say about the Chinese, Chinese are where the United States used to be in 1920. And it took us 90 years to get to 81% urbanization. So that's my mindset. And I've been, to, I've been told that the, 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 my time is running. This is my mindset. I'm talking about Google driverless car. I'm talking about intelligent toilets. And 86% of the world is still struggling with, thanks to the Gates Foundation, how to get 750 million people in India to use their toilet. So what did I learn? And I'm going to leave you with the these takeaways, that if we really want to engage with the 86% of the world, don't build a car when you need a bullock cart. Aim for the rickish economy. This is the only time in the United States that people like me were not born in the United States, but we are US citizens, and we're doing amazing things, like the story that we heard from Jasmine. There are close to more than $400 billion that goes from the 14% of the world to the 86% of the world. I can, in this room, buy a car, Maruti car, from my brother by using a city card, and it will be shipped to him in two days from New Delhi. That's how much impact the, 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 the immigrants are having in terms of how to engage with the 86% of the world. Look for the leapfrog. Look for the leapfrog would be how the technology is changing there. You probably have heard about M-Pesa, how they're using that in, 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 uh, uh, in Kenya. Okay, and so and so forth. So I'm going to conclu conclude this by showing you a, uh, a, a video. And if we can go to that video, please. It's, I think it's in the beginning of the slides. Uh, maybe it's not. Yeah, this one. Could we show this video, please? While a small part of the world is worried about the next big thing after Netflix, the rest of the world has some bigger technological issues, like the 130 million people in India who go without electricity on an average of eight hours a day, every day. They live in a permanent blackout from the world. Bihar and Jharkhand gave us no way to communicate with them, except for one thing, their mobile phones. And in Bihar and Jharkhand, 65% of the population has one. We transform this rudimentary piece of technology they already have into the only constant and reliable medium of entertainment in town. The Kankajura Station, a radio station in a mobile phone that works very simply. You make a missed call to a number, and a few seconds later you receive a call back with 15 minutes of free entertainment. Music, news, series, 
jokes, and of course, advertising from all our brands. Because with 130 million inhabitants, this was an important market for Unilever's growth in India. During the first weeks, we received 150,000 calls each day. In just six months, the Kanjura station is already the largest media channel in Bihar and Jharkhand. With 24 million calls and 8 million unique users. The Kanjura station, a new media that brought rural India out of the media darkness and got it connected to the world. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you this. Oh, can we go to the next slide, please? That how do 14% of the world can engage with the 86% of the world? Can you open this, uh, the, uh, this slide, please? This is very, very interesting that this is so common in the 86% of the world to have missed call. Those of you who have traveled, you probably know that. As a matter of fact, there's a huge problem in Egypt. You talk to the telecom company, they will tell you that are the, the networks are busy and we're not making any money because the young kids are there and missed call. Five, meet me at the mall. Three, let's go to my mother's house. And none of these people notice that behavior except for an American girl who left Stanford to see how she can get engaged in the 86% of the world. And that's this lady. So she noticed that there's something unique about the missed, missed call behavior. She was one of the first ones to come up with an idea how to use that for marketing. And she created a company that she would give them 800 number, they would call that number, a missed call, and she would send them a coupon. It took a 14% young woman from Stanford to go and notice that word. Ladies and gentlemen, we can engage, but we cannot engage by talking. That's why I don't come to this town. This is my word. These are my companies. These are my people. And yes, you can make money because she sold her company after three years for $30 million to Twitter. And she moved to Singapore because she wants to conquer the rest of Asia and the rest of Africa. Thank you so much and God bless you. So let's all go up. Okay, that was a <clears throat> terrific, terrific set of talks. Um, as moderator, I've got a few rules. Most important rule, I taped but have not yet watched last night's episode of Game of Thrones. So no one is allowed to mention the fate of Jon Snow, please. Second is I'm gonna need cover when I try to steal one of these Atlanta Council mugs on the way out. So keep an eye on Barry for that. Um, all right, so what we heard was a range of presentations talking about the really radical, dramatic change in today's world. We touched upon areas covering in cyberspace the changing relationships of states to non-state actors and to individuals and the rapid pace at which those power relationships can go up, can go down very, very quickly. 
and the profound impact that could have on a nation's security, the relationship of, of states to their people, the relationship of states to states. We talked about narratives and language. We talked about how words matter greatly and profoundly. And we touched on the challenge we have living in a micro world, where all of us today can very, very easily live just within our own mindset. Right? I could go, I have my own favorite websites I go to. I go to the Atlantic Council website 12 times a day. Okay, Dan? Um, I have my version of the news, I have my version of reality, and I never have to leave it. We've really never lived in a world like this, where whatever your value system is, your belief system, in the, in the developed world, I'll use the 14% the or 86% side of the equation as, as we want to be, we've never lived like this. So I grew up when there were three news channels. And the nation essentially watched the evening news. It was NBC, ABC, CBS. They were three broadcasters. Those broadcasters spoke within a spectrum. Um, and everyone, of course, charges everyone else with a little bit of bias. But essentially, you were limited to those three main channels. Today, there are thousands of news outlets. So this impacts who we are as people. This impacts our ability to communicate with others. This impacts our belief system how we reinforce our preconceived notions, and the, and the true difficulty we are going to have, continue to have, breaking out of our preconceived notions to this mindset of talking, talking as one. We spoke about the issue of developed world, we'll say the one percenters to, to bring it home a little bit for the US context. We talked about this issue of the, the concentration of wealth, of innovation, of power, of luxury, and how that schism is basically growing larger and larger. And what does that mean from a sense of stability, from social fairness and equity, from longer term opportunities, business wise, um, culturally, socially. And I just want to bring one, one, one more point to this. Um, we talked a little bit about our election cycle. So what does it represent? In many ways, what it represents is um, really a considerable rejection of the norms by which we have identified candidates, how, we, how the parties, the traditional structures by which candidates are vetted, validated, and ultimately voted into office has been thrown upside down on the Republican side of the aisle, certainly. And I don't think very many people have a good sense at all of what this means in a sort of post controlled environment in terms of the political process, but it's also something much larger about our narrative we have today and about the challenges we're facing. So I, I want to ask one question across for all panelists, and then I want to open it up for your questions for our remaining time. And, th and that essentially goes back to this issue of, is it possible to, to stitch together a common sense of purpose? So we talked about it in terms of the cyber space. We have white hacks, we have black hats. We have a, a field by which you have a community of the technology world that believes passionately in end-to-end -end encryption. And you have a, a large segment in the technology world that makes its money and its raison d'etre is exploiting your use data 
And the last thing they want to see is, is that loss of access. So I wonder if we could start on the point of stitching together for the challenges we're facing, what, what sort of near-term frameworks would be most effective to help us get to that unified place, if that's at all possible? Sure. Um, so I'm still integrating many of the great topics from this morning, even, even with my own. And one thing that occurs to me is if we don't pick the right narrative structure, if we don't pick the right metaphors, we may not pick the right paths forward. And when I look at the traditional work on cyber to date, it's been either in the uh, offense, defense, deterrence, do loop on cyber as a conflict domain or a nation state to nation state topic, or it's been on privacy and the relationship between privacy and security on the other hand. And both of them seem stuck. They seem to be in a quagmire. What I've been trying to assert, and I think is, is potentially a third way, and a way to turn this on its side, to look at it differently, is we have a collective and shared interest in having defensible, reliable, survivable, resilient digital infrastructure across nation states, across allies, across different peoples with different values. So while the other ones can break on partisan lines or become stuck, this may be something uh, like a moonshot or a space race where there, it is a moral imperative, a national priority, a collective grand challenge to find more defensible, reliable, sur uh, survivable digital infrastructure. Um, that changes it from being me versus them or my, my allies one at a time to something where we have to work together on these things. Um, and this isn't just a US issue. Uh, these are international markets. These are international innovations. And it's going to take international focus. So to, to one extent, if we look at this as conflict, we may find conflict. And if we look at this as a, a trade-off between privacy and security, we may find that. If we look at it as something we can act upon uh, to raise our defensive capabilities, I think there might be something new, a new angle on a similar thing, which may also improve the other two. Jasmine, Jasmine and I, by the way, we're, we're colleagues at the Pentagon as well. And um, she's small, but she's tough, so be careful around her. Um, on, on the whole countering violent extremist narrative, one of the interesting challenges to me has been the, as you've said, the us versus them dichotomy. Um, is there a space, wh what's the common space between us and them at which we could find a a, a path forward that is more unifying than where we are today? Well, that's, I mean, that's a tough question. Uh, but it's, it's a great question and it's worth asking and thinking about. I think that, you know, I, I studied marketing and psychology in college and little did I know how useful they would be <laughs> years later. But I, I want to say a couple of things. One is that when people feel threatened, and this may seem obvious to you, but when people feel threatened, it's really easy to try to you know, hide within your tribe, so to speak. You know? And that's where the us versus them comes from. It's, it's, it's comforting, and it makes you feel safe to think that, you know, us, we're, we're together, and like these are all the rest of the bad guys. But I think that if we, we have to redefine 
what that means. We have to redefine the us and we have to redefine them. I mean, what if us meant non-extremists and them meant extremists? What if, it be, what if that was the way that we looked at the world and what if that, that was the way that we started talking about things? Then all of a sudden you would find a huge shift in the way that we talk to each other and in the groups within which we feel safe. And in order to do that, to my second point, we all have to participate in the conversation. And it has to be both top down and bottom up. And so, you know, I think, for example, I mean, this is kind of cliche because now everyone's talking about him, but Justin Trudeau, the, you know, in Canada, look at how he's redefining the conversation, how he's redefining Canadian identity. And look at how many voices have come up to support him. So we need a leader to do that. We need to elect leaders who will do that, but then we also need to do it ourselves, you know? In marketing, we learned that, you know, if there's a cereal box and it says for, you know, comments, if you have comments, please call this number, but no one ever calls the number to say how much they loved that cereal. You know, they just call to complain. And so, for lack of a better analogy, like if our country is a cereal box, like we all need to call and say how much we love it and how great it is and all the things that are good about it because we can't just let the bad voices and the discontent be the one that is heard. So leadership matters. I think. But that's leadership and participation. Leadership, I mean, it's, leadership is not enough and civic participation is not enough. You need to meet in the middle. You know, those are both necessary elements of a strong and resilient society. Dr. Mahan, it's in terms of investment, um, sort of from a global corporate standpoint, profits are going to be found generally in the higher risk markets, your higher margins, but by definition, higher risk. So you're also more likely to lose. Uh, what, what's the pace of investment that you believe to be healthy in what would be called the developing world for technologies that will have most application in that world if you're a large multinational company? Are you finding, are you gonna find the, the sort of return on investment there that you would if you were instead focused in on a developed economy where people are gonna be buying higher end commodities? Uh, yes and no. I think the, the right question to ask there is that we have to be there for the long term. Uh, profit gives you a very short-term perspective. And so uh, for the long-term, example would be like Coca-Cola. They've been there in uh, Africa for almost about 80 years. And uh, uh, good times, bad times, but they stayed there. And when uh, you had HIV AIDS and you did not know how to actually uh, deliver condoms, get which company did? Coca-Cola did because they are literally in every nook and corner of Africa, and they deliver it. Uh, Unilever is the same way. So I think these companies are for the long term, because there look six billion people there. They say, which idiot is going to forget six billion people on this planet? Nobody's going to do that. So, but that's not a complete story. The complete story there is, and then I'll react to the, Jasmine, the comment on Jasmine's, the, 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 what Jasmine said, you have to keep in mind that among the six billion people, half of them are living in the non-urban areas. So there are three billion of them. Out of three billion, one billion are in South Asia. 
between Pakistan, India, and Bangladesh. And guess what? Majority of them are Muslims. So when you look at the rest of the world, 3 billion people, 2.6 billion people live in only 10 countries. And I'm going to give you the names and notice something very interesting about these countries. There are seven of them are in Asia. These are in India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Indonesia, China, Vietnam, and Philippines. And there are three of them are in Africa. That's Ethiopia, Egypt, and Nigeria. Ladies and gentlemen, majority of the Muslims in this world are actually in the rural countries. You talk about the engagement, that's the engagement we need. We need more people like Valerie to see how we can link with the people in the rural areas. One, you said what unites us together? What unites us together are the mother's emotions. Among the 90 plus countries that I have visited, hundreds and hundreds of interviews, I did not see any difference in the mothers. Mother's aspirations are always the same. Each mother wants the best for her child. They don't want their children to become terrorists. They don't. They want the best to give it to them. They want the best education. They want the best professions. They want them to have the best spouses. Ladies and gentlemen, if we are serious about that, let's talk about these top 10 countries, and I'll give you a couple of examples, where 2.6 billion people live out of the 70% of the 3 billion who live in Africa and Asia. What can we do? Many things we can do. And let's think like Valerie Wagner, who wanted to do something good for the developing countries, and she thought she'll go into microfinance, and then she created a company and brought a lot of the social welfare to the rural areas. What can we do? Every year we have a conference in Las Vegas on the electronic industry. Everybody shows up, iPhone, Microsoft, why can't we have a conference? Why can't USAID, why cannot the State Department actually have a conference every year where everybody from the entire planet comes and shows their technology they have developed to solve the problem of these three billion rural consumers? Why can't we do that? Why can't we have a, the, 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 the system where we actually create in this country, people like Valerie, like a Peace Corps, they go there to this, the, the, this top 10 countries with a rural population, and they do exactly what Valerie did, and on and on. So in my, in my opinion, what unites us is the mother's emotions. And let's capitalize on that. My mother is not any different from your mother. I came from a blue middle class family. Thank God for this one lady. She got married when she was 13 years old. My father was 16 years old. She has only eighth grade education, but she had one ambition. That ambition was, she had 11 kids. I don't know what the hell they were doing. The, the, they were probably too much in love. I probably didn't know what was going on. But one ambition she has was, that only way to get out of that middle class family or the poverty was education. And we came from a rural area. So ladies and gentlemen, let's go to these mothers. Let's understand their aspiration. Let's go to these rural areas. Because you don't have any problem with the urban areas. And you look at these rural areas, majority of that population between Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, Indonesia, Philippines, Egypt, Ethiopia, Nigeria, they're Muslim populations. So it is almost Mother's Day, so I thought that was a very eloquent <laughs> statement that you made. Let's give all the mothers a big hand, please. <laughs> 
Um, let's open it up for questions. Questions or comments. Got one right over here. Thank you. Oh. Um, thank you. I'm very impressed with Jasmine. Thank you, Jasmine. Um, so my name is Jeanine Nguyen with Voice of Vietnamese Americans. And I am very impressed with what you said and presented. And since you seem to be the youngest one and the lady too, I would like, <laughs> I would like to ask, would you define, you talk about words, how to use it, the narrative of it. And you said you are American Muslim. So I would ask, should we say Muslim Americans? Because you seem to be a little lost. You said we are so divided. We have no um, things that bind us together. We're so diverging. So if we say that we are Muslim Americans, then all the American values came from our constitution is the foundation for us as a nation. So unless you're trying to reach out to the global arena where Muslim is in the global arena, then that's a different uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. But since we're here as Americans, I would ask if you would use Muslim Americans, because then that would ultimately and naturally bias us all together with our American values, which is now being supported universally. Many of American values, including human rights, civil rights, women rights, now being supported universally in the United Nations. Mm -hmm. And I also would suggest that would bring us back nationally to the constitution of the US, where it's our found, would help all our presidential elections candidates, I would say. Thank you. Can I, thank you so much. I, I think, first I want to tell you that I'm older than I look, I promise. <laughs> uh, but thank you, thank you so much for that question. I think that, and, and your comment, I, I actually, it's something that I think about all the time and I've thought about it a lot over the last year, especially as I started speaking more and more about Islam in America and issues like that. I didn't really start doing it until about a year ago. And as I, as I started thinking about it and writing about it, I struggled with that term. You know, am I a Muslim American? Am I an American Muslim? And honestly, I think you make great points. Um, I also think that it depends, you know, I mean, I think for me personally, I identify as an American first and my religion comes secondary. I'm not, a, I'm not religious, I'm not a very religious person, you know, but I am a Muslim, you know, a Muslim. I come from a Muslim family. So to me, being American is actually a much stronger part of my identity. Um, and for some people, it might be the reverse, you know? I mean, I th every, every community struggles with that. Am I an American Jew or am I Jewish American? And so I think everybody has to make that choice. For me, it, it was important to say American Muslim also because I feel like one of the challenges that we have in talking about Islam, and especially when it comes to Islam in America, is, is this tendency to talk about Muslims like as if they're one global community of Muslims. And I wanted to make the distinction between 
American there, you know, there are American Muslims, there are Egyptian Muslims, there are, you know, and they're not necessarily the same. They don't necessarily care about the same issues. So, but someone else might say something different. Someone else might say, no, Islam is one global identity. I am a Muslim American. So I think it depends. Um, I've chosen, I've made my choice, you know, based on certain reasons, but I certainly think that others can make a different choice. Thank you. I think we had a question over here. Uh, Jerry Glenn with the Millennium Project. Um, you asked a little bit about uniting. We got a strategy, global strategy forum title up here. And what would sort of bring some of this stuff together? Um, the cyber, the culture, the third world, etc. One of the things I would suggest is some kind of Apollo-like goal, land a man moon type goal, jointly though with China, that other countries could join in. Some outrageous goal that's not reasonable, that's not simple, mm -hmm. but seriously challenging, like Lanham on the Moon, that could bring together a lot of interests of the world and give us a reason to be engaged with more of the world. Well, I don't think it's going to be given with shark fin soup, but I'll let you take an answer. Um, <laughs> no, I, I think, I don't think we first, uh, you, don't, you don't solve the hard problems until you first identify them, and I don't think we have collectively identified just how severe our dependence is, uh, uh, poorly placed dependence. Um, but I do agree that we're going to need strange bedfellows to make this kind of thing work. It's one of those things where anyone dependent on the benefits of these technologies has a shared interest in making them more reliable, anti-fragile, defensible, rugged, et cetera. Um, one thing that struck me, though, as I was trying to look for the connective tissue amongst us is the two words that kept coming together were de dependence and empathy. Um, we can do pretty much anything with technology right now. but we don't yet know how we want to use it and where we should exercise restraint. So on the dependence front, you know, if you imagine a science fiction or art of future kind of a scenario where all the connected technology is uh, rendered useless, right? Um, geopolitically, which countries will suffer more will be the ones that are more dependent upon it. And then conversely, whether it's how we divide ourselves or not, and who's defecting, and where there's social cohesion, it's about empathy for each other and for other people's things. And it sounds touchy-feely for policy folks and for technology folks, especially for white hat hacker folks. But I think everything that we've accomplished through this cavalry initiative has been rooted in empathy. One of our early members, she said, Josh, if you want to change the world, the first thing we need to change ourselves. We are terrible at empathy. And to that end, um, it's been looking for our shared interest instead of our solo interest. It's been looking for the, the, the system optimum instead of the local optimum. And I think that's been a common theme amongst um, the folks up here. And just to punctuate this, the, the, the guy that we mentioned in, from Anonymous who defected and became more radicalized, one of the trailing thoughts we had at the end of the Building a Better Anonymous series was that if you look at Lord of the Flies and the state of nature being a state of war, what are the implicit bones of the social contract? It's nationalism. It's some form of rule of law. It's some sort of religious belief structure. And it's family structure. And when we were researching Anonymous, they were a zero for four. And when I look at that, it wasn't even the, the love of a mother. It was, they were zero for four. And when I look at that, um, we're going to have to come up with new bones for the new social contract. I don't know what they are, but I don't think it's going to be a technology problem, and I don't think it's going to be a conflict problem. And if we don't get that new social contract right, and we don't get the empathy right, what you're going to find is the power centers in this Westphalia Plus post-nationalist world 
Um, the, the defection you saw in Anonymous in Spain, for example, was very high, high activity. It was because there was a 50% unemployment rate for college-educated males. So if we aren't looking at those opting out of social contracts, and if we aren't replacing the bones of the new social contract with something else, I think you'll see the, the edges and the defection have an asymmetric impact on the rest of us. I think that's very well said, and just even in terms of, as you've mentioned, the Westphalian system, mm. um, I think we face some significant challenges in just our systems of governance um, and their applicability to a much more micro-based society and, and whether, we could, whether we need to have adaptation um, in areas that are still ill-defined. I think we have time for one more question right over here. Herbert Regenbogen. Uh, when you speak about the emancipation of the individual and you speak about the uh, opportunities for relating to each other in spaces. Yet the workplace in the United States is the opposite. And so my question is, how do you transcend the very autocratic structure of a workplace in the USA with the type of emancipation you are seeking in a normative, in a normative stage? So that's an outstanding question. Um, let me actually give each of you a chance to, to respond. Yeah, it is a great question. Thank you. Uh, despite what sounds like a very, like wide variety of experiences, I've actually spent most of my career in one workplace, and that's the Pentagon. And I found that, um, again, just to keep coming back to this leadership matters, um, when our, I started working at the Pentagon in 2008, very shortly after I started working there, Michelle Flournoy became the Under Secretary of Defense for policy, and the almost overnight changes that I saw in the building and in our organization and in our workforce were immense. And it was because she had a very clear idea of what needed to be done and she had a very clear belief in the power of the individual and in the respect that you had to afford individuals because strong individuals make a strong organization. And she came in with that view, and you know, Todd and, and Dan can attest to this. And it changed the entire organization, um, and it started at the top. So I would say, from my experience, that, that's what it took. Uh I have done consulting with many of the companies, but uh, most of my life I have spent in a university setting. So imagine the following scenario as University of Texas at Austin. 20% uh, of our population uh, on the campus are international students. So almost about 8,000 of them. Uh, They're coming from 100 plus countries. So what you're looking at is that you're looking at really a United Nations, the whole world, and these are the people who are your customers. Uh, when you look at our faculty, when I started in this profession, there was not a single woman. In my whole education, I did not have a single female teacher. Uh, in my department, more than half of them are no women, very smart women. And many of them have come from international, different countries. 
So now think the administration. Administration is dealing with 8,000 students who are not international, who are international. Administration is dealing with the Asian Americans, Muslim Americans, Korean Americans. Administration is dealing with the faculty who are females, Indian Americans, Korean Americans, Vietnamese American. So which president you think is not going to lead this? Because they know their customers. Which provost is not going to lead this university? Because they know their customers. So these customers collectively sometime can force the leader to change, and it has happened to us. For the first time in the history of the University of Texas, Austin, we have a female provost, a very, very sharp and strong lady. For the first time in the history of the, uh, the, the, the University of Texas, Austin, we have Admiral, Mac what was his name, the one who uh, was in Afghanistan and killed? McRaven, who would have imagined He's the chancellor of the University of Texas system because he looked around what he has to manage. And everybody said, he's the right guy. Ladies and men, at the end of the day, you have to look at who you're serving. And you will become a strong leader because you are measured. So in our case, the composition, what we have on the campus, brought the major change. Chuck, I'm going to have to give you the last word because I know we, we need to end on time. I look at this in terms of defection from social contract, and when I look for the things that frighten me, it's that we're letting these bones disintegrate, or but but not replacing them. So I won't lament individual pieces of that. Like, should we try to keep you know nationalism a thing? Should we you know try to focus on family structure? Instead, I'd like to aggressively identify stabilizing forces that can replace or augment the ones that we're uh, we're losing, and. If we don't focus on some of those values or unifying ideas, the you know I believe in social entropy, so things tend to go to order disorder on their own, but not the other way around. And I look for things in Silicon Valley that are promising. You even see the U.S. government embracing these things of DevOps, of combining the incentives of developers and operations for mutual success. And at the heart of that also is an empathy thing. So I don't know what those are, but I know that. What they figured out is get the heck out of the way of your talent pool, give them some sort of North Star, and they will meet and exceed anything you had ever thought to tell them to do. And I think what we're missing is some unifying principles, values, or North Stars um, that could channel that angst and frustration away from defection and towards uh, contribution. And in fact, if I'm really honest with myself, part of the reason we started building, the, we wrote the Building a Better Anonymous and then started I Am the Cavalry, it's that. As you saw in the post-Snowden era, as people became frustrated and distrusting of their government, if we didn't create a positive outlet for action and, and contribution, my fear, part of my fear was that you would see more people dusting off their black hats and their gray hats uh, and, and becoming more aggressive. So I think we have to create or identify those things that could be the common thread and the unifying principles, as opposed to lamenting the old ones. So I'm going to. Just put one addendum in there before we wrap. I've had a chance to work um, for multiple years at almost all of our national security institutions in government. Um, the last place I worked at was the Pentagon. And I would say the structure of the Pentagon offers a fascinating conundrum that is relevant to all the points that were made. Um, in many ways, to me, the Pentagon um, is the dying model of corporate America. 
it is the last place in the world you could go where hierarchy matters more than anything. Um, so that's unhealthy, I think, in terms of the future of business and the future of sort of leadership and identifying common values. Now, break, break. The Department of Defense is overwhelmingly the most effective organization in the United States government to be able to respond to um, a task. Um, operationally, from, from planning, from budgeting, from oversight. So there's something there between that rigid dying structure and the effectiveness of that structure and where we are going that I, I leave with the group as a thought to um, uh, how to balance that. So with that, I want to thank our panelists. And I know we've got an excellent afternoon ahead of us. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. Thanks, everyone. This was a great panel that really did look at both opportunities and challenges. Thank you all for staying with us uh, through the morning. We've got a great lunch uh, outside uh, for you. There are spaces. Please, again, take advantage of the exhibits that are on outside. There's also some seating room in the back down the hall uh, if you'd like to sit down uh, with your lunch. And of course, the micro talk by Ken Liu that uh, will be given uh, in that room uh, as well. Don't forget, right after lunch, we've actually got uh, a live debate. We want to show you how debates can be done done, uh, not, necessarily, not necessarily how you've seen them done uh, lately, on we need to make America great again. We've got David Rothkopf and Corey Shockey already in the house uh, who are getting prepared to do that. You're going to be asked to vote before the debate. You're going to be asked to vote after the debate. We'll see if anybody convinced you of anything different uh, during the process. So enjoy your lunch. We'll call you back in in a few minutes. Uh, please stay with us. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.